Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the amazing Brian LaBelle. I met Brian as his PhD examiner and today we talk about that. We also talk about Brian's experience as a kind of accidental PhD researcher and what he learned from going through that process. So I do hope you enjoy the episode. I thought you were there. Hello, it is truly a pleasure to be speaking to you on this fine day. Um, it's always lovely to say hello to you. Um, I'm going to confess straight away that we know each other, um, and a, a, a big way that we know each other is that I was your um, PhD examiner. Um, so here we are as proof that you can be be friendly with your phd examiner it, it it can it's possible it can work out possible maybe even encourageable there you um, go. I, and, it, and it is true also i should say that before my phd viva when thinking about who i really wanted to connect with to share my work with you were the person that i really wanted to connect with so we didn't know each other before the viva but i think you were the right person for that that job because also in reading my PhD and in having you as the examiner, we could actually forge a really interesting professional relationship moving forward. So I guess that's tip number one for the life raft. I know you Straight in there with the tips. I love sorry, it. Sorry. <laughs> wow, you're a value for money guest. I like it. Um, <laughs> No, it's true. And I think actually this is this is really true. And it is, I'm going to just stay with this for a minute before it was very generous of you to not start to speak of your story straight away. But this is very true in terms of thinking about who you would like to know about your work. And because your examiner ideally is someone who welcomes you into the field, who um, can really see how that work fits in the bigger context and so uh yeah we talk a lot about choosing examiners on the podcast and it's really important um I know I just want to say the more you can think of it as a conversation with people who you're hoping will be your peers and less of an exam in which you have to get your questions right Mm -hmm. is actually Mm -hmm. makes for a much more interesting viva and a much more interesting career post viva yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. it it's very, very true. Um, and this is the thing, it's truly pleasurable as an examiner uh, to, you know, I, I only agree to examine things that I'm really interested in. Hmm. So that sense it's of... a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but and, and, the, and the payoff as an examiner is this, you know, this is cutting edge material. It's really interesting. Um, so... Yeah, I think this is um, a, a really important point to start with. Yeah, so absolutely. yes, it was it was great to meet you and to read your work, which is um, was 
brilliant and um i'm going to put links to to your um work in the show notes and i would recommend that people um have a look at the the range of material that you've produced um so let's let's backtrack a little bit then because we we always start with asking people about their about their journey Mm. into the phd through the phd so tell us a little bit about about you so i did my PhD um, purely because I needed a visa. <laughs> and I, I like to start by sharing that because it is 100% true. Just to backtrack a little bit, um, you know, I was in 2003 or so, I wrote a play about my experience with cancer in America that toured the US and Canada quite extensively. And then at 25, I had to leave my parents' insurance because of this was a time before Obamacare in America. And you before you used to be able to pay into a parent's insurance, but then at 25, you had to go independent. So I had to, despite the fact that I was touring 40 cities a year, Uh, talking to medical students and nurses and doctors about my experience with cancer. And I hope being helpful in the world, uh, the United States lack of health insurance meant that I couldn't be a freelancer at that point. I had to go in. So I was like, well, I have to go get a master's degree. I'll come. Then I discovered that I could do my master's degree much cheaper in London than I (laughs) could do it in the U S because it was a one year degree in the UK as opposed to a two year degree. But then there used to be also this thing where you could extend your visa for an extra year after the master's to work in the UK. That was canceled when the time that I got here. So I, I know that this is a long story, but the reason no, why no, I'm I love it is that I actually signed up to do a PhD because I needed a visa. And the only reason why that's important <laughs> because I am not a traditional academic. I did not achieve in a traditional way in school. I did okay in school, but mostly through kind of enthusiasm and charm as opposed to book knowledge and analytic skills. Um, But I was an artist and I was doing art in a space that there wasn't a lot of people in. And so the people at Queen Mary were really enthusiastic about me moving from a master's to a PhD. I originally did something about, I don't know, pain and the spectacle of pain. I was studying something that was kind of based on the work of Elaine Scarry. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, why do I have this career as an artist who's making work about his own personal experience of lived experience of cancer and performativity of cancer stories and doing a PhD that's so deeply disconnected. And so I really decided to align those things with really good encouragement from uh, my PhD supervisors who were Lois Weaver and of course the late great Catherine Silverstone. Um, And they really encouraged me to say like, your practice is already raising interesting questions about the field. So why don't you use that as really the starting point of a PhD? And then my experience of doing a PhD was I found like a great privilege because in some ways, and I didn't do a practice-based PhD. I did an analytic PhD, you know, traditional 85,000 words, um, but that used some of my own practice as, if not case studies, as kind of starting points for how we can move this. Understanding that a lot of the 
feminist and kind of queer theory that I was drawing from and inspired by really always tried to encourage the positionality of the researcher Mm -hmm. um, at at the forefront of the research, which is kind of what I was doing. So that was my journey of doing my PhD. I was not funded um, by uh, the Queen Mary. I received a small maintenance grant which is I think maybe five or 6,000 pounds a year for which I had to do five or 6,000 pounds worth of teaching. Mm. This is the kind of thing that I think sometimes like an Italian engineering student will get a PhD and will have their fees waived if they agree to do a little Italian teaching, which of course is a ridiculous way to understand how language is taught. But I think a lot of universities use that kind of model, um, which There was a lot that was bad about that. And I couldn't have done that if I weren't a single man without dependence. I could have never done that. Right, right. But there was also a really positive element in that it really encouraged my artistic practice. Mm -hmm. I did get a Welcome Trust funding in the first year of my PhD studies, um, which enabled a lot of other work, including my PhD. So... I'm trying to find the silver lining in the cloud of not having funding right, in that way. Right, right. But um, the other thing was that it encouraged me to teach. And I had to teach seven classes, four of which I led. Like I taught wow. on three classes and I led on four. Wow. Yeah. I had my Viva on May 1st with you, Emma. Hmm. And the next day I had a job interview and I got a job almost, I got a job that day. Oh my. Which happened to be a lovely coincidence. But I think that also the fact that I had so much teaching under my belt separated me a lot from a PhD student who might teach two classes or maybe three in their time. But that was my journey. Um, And I guess the one other piece I'll just say quickly is that I really, instead of breaking up my PhD into a lot of chapters that could be published... I kind of condensed most of the arguments into one of those theater and cancer books, which is like uh, one of those small 80 uh, 80 page, really like not easy read books, but they're meant for kind of a general public. And I really Mm -hmm. loved the process. So that was kind of the finishing point of my PhD, which didn't come until six years later, seven years later. But that was exciting for me to think about that in the continuum. I'm sorry, I've talked too long. No, 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 that's... Brilliant. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. There's lots of really, really important, important things in there. Thank you. And we're going to come back to being this kind of accidental PhD student in a minute. Yeah. But these issues about finding your place, these issues, finding your place within the discourse, mm. um, but also yeah. finding your, finding the, the kind of the whole funding situation um, yeah. and being able to, this is, going to become more and more of a challenge for people and I'd love Absolutely. that you've given a kind of the, the the positive aspects of that in terms of getting the teaching experience but of course there, there's lots that we want to talk about in terms of the way in which people may be exploited or there's precarity you know there's precarity in that oh, system. absolutely but absolutely absolutely but I think that that acknowledging that, that I think it is important within that to acknowledge that there there are experiences that you can have on your PhD journey, experiences of teaching, for example, that can be really, really useful for you. Um, although they they kind of um, run parallel to your research work, they can be they can be useful. Yeah. I mean, I 
I think that there is, there's always a way you can make your non-PhD activities relevant to your PhD. Mm. If you try really hard Mm. and you're really ruthless about the frames in which you teach, the references you make, the syllabi that you're creating, the the ways that you're talking to two T's, like all of these different ways are ways for you to think through some of those essential questions Mm. of your PhD. And the reason why I think those would also make you a good teacher is if you're teaching really from your passion, your students will get that. Mm. If you can really honestly say to your students, something that I'm interested in right now and something that I've got questions about If that's real, that's really inspiring for an undergraduate student, a master's student, really inspiring. Um, And they want it. So I think we can be, as a community, even more encouraging. Just say, like, like, PhD should really teach kind of towards the material that they're working on, even in small ways, even in really small ways. I love it. Yeah, like you say, even if it's just the questions that you have about that material... Anyway, I want to I want to um, come back to this not intending to undertake a PhD. Yeah, yeah. And being quite, I guess, instrumental about the PhD. Um, and then what? How that was? Because you were an artist. That was you had your practice. You had a body of work, literally a yeah. body of work. No pun intended. <laughs> um, and and then you come into this this process and the same as you said it wasn't practice based it was it was um kind of a lot of um writing reflecting on the work and um I remember in the in the vival one of the things that we asked you was what did you learn from from this from from undertaking this kind of this survey and inquiry so I'm going to ask you that again now oh <laughs> with, my god with, with more with the, the benefit of kind of further distance from that um, what what did you learn? Do you think from from that from the PhD? I I learned about the essential the essential as in critical as in deeply important nature of the patient voice mm. in research. Mm. And I know that when I do work with doctors and nurses, there's increasing interest in PPI or whatever it's called patient and participant-led research, PLP, they're all different, called different things. But I think that it's essential to academic and creative inquiry um, that can also be really rigorous. I think that what I learned was that doing the PhD, I both needed to lead with myself and lead with my heart and my own stories and experience, but also to be very deeply rigorous, to question whether I was you know, always a stable narrator or whether I was correct. And I think the greatest academia that centers those things also does that. I'm thinking about Jackie Stacy really situating Mm -hmm. herself in her practice and in her research, but also like, and not being afraid to say this was my experience, but also saying, and in my reading, I found that 60% of people share this experience. You know, I think that the problem that a lot of people have right now with Instagram-led research and kind of a lot of social media is that like the, people say like, this is my experience and therefore it has to be honored and respected, right. um, which, uh, which in many ways I agree with. But I think that there's, I think academic study puts a, 
an extra layer inside of that, which is, this is my experience. I'm going to read around whether that is shared by a lot of people, shared by not a lot of people, if it's exceptional, if it's not exceptional, what it teaches us, et cetera, to then say it is important. Mm-hmm. So it gives that extra layer of, yeah, of, of rigor, of kind of questioning that mm-hmm. doesn't just say, I I feel, therefore, I am correct. Mm. Mm. I feel, therefore, I research, therefore, I'm correct. Mm. Mm. Yes. And I, I think this, this sense of, of your, uh, well, f- from reading your work, which um, around um, kind of theatre and health performance activism and health activism, um, this sense of having that, place of reflection being able to sort of um take as you say a, a different perspective on um the work actually there was a if I'm putting words into your mouth but a kind of a gift of that in terms of of um being able to look at the material from a different point a different place uh- Absolutely. Because if I want to make some large claims about what it means to have cancer, I need to have spent time thinking about not only what it meant to be a 20-year-old middle-class white American Jewish queer guy, but like, what does it mean for other people? Mm. If if I believe that the, the experience that I had was deeply rooted intersectionally with a lot of different identities... I need to think about how that would be with different equations that lead to different identities and lead to different pressures pulling in different ways. And for me, relating my work to Audre Lorde Mm. and putting our work in relationship to each other, that Mm. doesn't mean that we're the same. It doesn't mean that we're different at everything. It means that we can share some details, but that's the same as putting my work next to Lance Armstrong's or Jackie Stacey's or Susan Sontag's or Jade Goody's. Like I'm trying to do all of those things. And what is exciting about academic research about something that you care about and something that's personally meaningful is that a good PhD supervisor and or a good examiner will really question you on that and say, yeah, I'm sure that that was true for you, Brian, but what can the world learn from that truth in a meaningful way? Mm -hmm. Um, And that doesn't question the individual voice. It actually, it lets us, um, in some ways, like problematize or nuance or expand the individual voice in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And I think this this sense of having that space and being able to to make use of that, which which I saw that you had done, this sense of um, of drawing together a wealth of material, um, synthesizing material. Um, as you say, with and uh, addressing with great rigor and reflection on on your own work and the work of other people, but the the this this sense of your PhD journey as as one of the journey as an opportunity um, and a a gift of reflection, and I think that sometimes people feel that it can't be enjoyable and it can't it can't be something that actually. Um, allows them to uh take pleasure in in what they're in what they're doing and I think that this sense of your the work that you did and the the richness of that 
um, seem to come through you savouring the material that you were working with. Does that, do you think that's fair enough? Or I, I hope so. I mean, the, the world of HE, higher education, PhDs, et cetera, wh- whatever it's called for whatever whoever's listening, um, is, is too precarious, too underwhelmingly paid for people to not have meaningful fun times during this career. Mm-hmm. It is a huge privilege to work in academia. And I don't mean that there's not ways that people are not deeply exploited. Mm-hmm. Privilege related to being in academia is that someone cares about your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Someone cares enough to examine your PhD, to supervise you, to do, to set up the, the programs, the citation programs that you need uh, to do your PhD. All along the way, there's privilege that someone cares about what you are to put into the world, mm-hmm. which I know a lot of people that work very hard for a lot less money than academics do, who would never be valued for their opinions, creative, intellectual, et cetera. So it's a huge privilege. And I think we should honor that mm-hmm. by taking that up and being very clear about what it provides us with. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why I'm doing that. If you can't have an intentionality with your PhD or think that the world is going to be, even in a small way, a better place after the world than when you started it, then I would really deeply encourage you to not do it. Because it's just simply, it's it's too underwhelming a path, unless there's some deep connection with that work and deep meaning. I know you have found deep meaning through your academic practice, Emma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know people that work in philosophy, which might not have the immediate day-to-day um, use value that's something like you know, mechanical engineering has or virology has, but in every subject, you should want to make the world a better place because the question that you're asking and answering is important to people. It's not theoretical. It, oh, of course, it's theoretical, but it's not, um, yeah. it's not not of use. And the reason why once that's all aligned... It's easier for you to get on board. It's easier for your family who are sacrificing to support you to do a PhD in in every way. Um, Even if you are funded, people are making sacrifices. It's all for you to add your thoughts into the world. That's a huge privilege. And I think if we can just identify that really with how we wish to contribute to the world being a better place, I think it's, it's, that's a critical piece. Oh, I love that. I love that. And, I also think it can really help, I absolutely agree, and I think it can really help people with it to be to be motivated. Because if absolutely. you if you don't absolutely. think what you're doing is of value, then of course you're not going to want to put it down on a piece of paper and get someone else to have a look at it. Whereas if you if there is that passion there and you believe in it and that it's going to it's going to make it make however small a difference you think it might it might be just changing the discourse it might be just addressing something that you can see there that's going on and you you think something different should be um attended to that sense of having having making a difference and and then wanting to get it out there that can help you to get up in the morning get on with what you need to do Absolutely. I mean, the cr- the crassest question that gets asked about this is, who cares? Mm. But actually, 
what's great is to have an answer to the question, who cares? I care. Mm -hmm. And these 10 people care because this is going to make a difference in how we receive vaccines, how we watch TV, how we do dance, you know, and actually just saying, who cares? If you have an answer for that question, it's every PhD student should come armed with a one sentence description of their PhD because everyone always asks what you're studying. Mm -hmm. And you should also have an answer to the question of who cares or how does the world change because of it? You need a one sentence answer to that. And if you can't have it, then you will be embarrassed every time someone asks you those questions, but they will ask you those questions. So you may as well just find an answer to them and kind of tweak, frame your PhD so that it does actually address those things. PhD elevator pitch. Well, there you are. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So is that, because we always ask for top tips, is that your top tip? to have that ready or do you, do you could you have another one for us i got another top tip the I one i've been it. really thinking about a lot recently is that you should always end your research or presentation or paper that you give at a conference if they're 20 minutes you should always aim to finish in 18 minutes that was yes. advice that i got from nick rideout yes yes, yes. And 18 minutes is roughly 2,800 words. So you should just put that as a, as a, as a really um, external fi- a factor to say 2,800 words. Don't do 2,900 and say you'll talk fast because that sucks. Just do 2,800 and get everything in there. But you should still, even with this shortened period, have a minute dedicated to what's next in your research. And the reason why is because every PhD student understands that the more you research, the more you create more research, right? The more questions you ask, the more questions that you're led to, and it can become an infinite process. In kind of acknowledgement of that infinite process, if you dedicate a minute to what's next, it means that you don't have to cover everything in 18 minutes because who the could... Um, and, and why should one be expected to, but it also gets, so in some ways it's a little bit of a inauthenticity, right? Cause sometimes you can shovel some questions you weren't quite able to untangle <laughs> presentation. So there's a, both an excuse, but then if you're a PhD student or you're an early career researcher, when you're saying what's next, you're saying, these are the things that are not fully formed. Mm-hmm. If there are people in this room, if there are people that are list- reading this article and you want to get involved, now is the time to get involved because yeah. it's not written yet. Yeah. Maybe we'll work together. Maybe we'll apply for something together. Yeah. And it gets people invested in your journey. And it also motivates you to say, you know what? I'm just writing this thing right now. I'm writing this chapter, this talk. I'm going to put this really interesting point in my what's next category. Because if you're anything like me, Emma, um, or your listeners are anything like me, you'll get really excited about an idea in the middle of your research. Oh yeah. 
You'll abandon your research to deal with that new question. And you won't have done that important thing that you were supposed to do, but you'll follow the next flashy thing. It's like that Twitter meme with the guy twisting his head, right? He's got a girlfriend in one hand and he turns around. You know that classic. Yeah, 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 yeah. That if you can just say, you know what, I'm going to put this exciting piece of work into my what's next category Mm. and just focus on what I'm doing. Because we as academics actually forget to stop and take kind of account for where we're at all the time. And we just always going next, 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 next. The world, of course, needs innovation, but it also needs really good accounting for where we are. Mm. So that's why I think this what next strategy is my top tip. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, I love two things about that. Nobody, like you say, no one's ever going to be upset if you're too sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> Everyone's happy. Um, but this sense of, of the journey and inviting people into your journey and that you don't have to get, things will never be finished. Like you say, it's, it's, it's an evolving story and acknowledging that and giving yourself some permission and breathing space with that. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Brian, thank you so, so much. Um, Pleasure. Thank you for the brilliant work you do. And as I say, we'll we'll have a link to that so people can can follow up the work that you do, important work and inspiring work that you do. And thank you so much for your just your generosity of spirit um, and gorgeous energy. Um, And and thank you for yours, Emma. Bless you. (laughs) Bless you. Um, And thank you all for listening.